everyone. My name is Jack Rico, and he's Mike Sargent. And he is brown, and I'm black. And this is the Brown and Black Podcast, a show about seeing race in media and entertainment, but through a brown and black lens. Uh, I'm joined, obviously, with Mike Sargent. Mike, how's it going over there in New York? Because I'm over here upstate, so I'm not in the middle of the epicenter of the world's energy right now. For the first time, I'm really starting to feel that blending of the days. Like, I know the day wow. we're recording this, but it could be any day of the week at this point, almost, because they're all kind of the same. You know, I may have different things I'm doing, and I have a schedule. I do this show. I do that show. But I'm really, you know, I need to get out. That's what it, I need to get out. I'm glad the curfew's over. I need to get out. Listen, the, the, I'm just shocked that you haven't gone through that from the beginning. I mean, I feel like I've been the days have been blending to me since like, you know, the third weekend of the whole quarantine. I think that's because I live the quarantine lifestyle. Self-isolating since 1976. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so because I work from home, I'm used to it. I'm getting to stuff. But after a while, like I really, yeah, I, I'm, I was, I was not pleased that the protest created the curfew for a while here in, in the city because there's nothing better than going out into New York City at night when the warm. There's nothing better. Yeah. Like, that's oh the reason to live in New York. Goodness, dude, a summer night like at 68, 72. No, no, you know what? Not even 78 to 82 degrees. Nice in Manhattan, walking by the river, of either on the East River. Or the Hudson River, man, or maybe you're just biking, or you're in a convertible right. and just kind of on an empty, you know, Hudson Parkway. Oh, dude, come on, dude, man, dude! Like now, where I could walk along the River of Discontent, but you know, <laughs> definitely, definitely miss the summer uh, in the city. I mean, I miss going out. That that. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm getting out soon. Are you bumping into riots? Well, you know, it's not that I'm bumping into riots. You know, one of the, the living here, I live in, in Harlem and I got used to for months waking up to sirens every day, all day, all day long sirens because I'm, I'm in, I'm in between a number of hospitals that became just sort of the background. Then when the protests started, then I started hearing helicopters, which is something I hadn't really heard like that since 9-11 when I was up here. And that was like, you'd hear like jets and helicopters and it was just a weird, surreal you know you're living in a movie kind of time but right now the time we're living in now there's so much change happening i think part of what helped create this movement to be what it is is the fact that people were cooped up that was definitely a main factor in this man on the one side people felt it was a violation of their rights they couldn't get a haircut but then when it comes <laughs> when it comes to, how petty when it comes to, well you know it, it seemed petty then but it seems even enormously more petty now to do with the podcast is that moving forward, we'd like to introduce this new segment of uh, topical headlines that we want to discuss with you just because we want to break this down into about three headlines, discuss them, and then get into our main topic for the podcast. And the first one right off the bat, Mike, that I wanted to discuss was, I'm not sure if you read the article with uh, T.I. He's the rapper back from the early 2000s. 
Uh, you know, I can't even really recall a good T.I. song. Oh, the one with Justin Timberlake. Uh, well, he recently decided that he wanted to call a blackout day on July 7th. And he wanted to do this. And here's the difference between all the other blackouts that are happening. This one is attached to some real change, man. And it's an economic boycotting that he has asked for. Essentially, it's people of color, BIPOC, uh, black, indigenous, people of color, not spend one dime, not a penny, in anything that day to see what the glitch in the Wall Street matrix is going to look like the day after. So I think that was that's the whole plan behind it. And it reminded me about, uh, I'm not sure if you remember this movie from 2004 from Sergio Araú, a Mexican director called A Day Without a Mexican. Uh, you know, I know of the film, but I haven't seen it, but, I, but I've heard that it was really good. Dude, the movie isn't that great. It's actually terrible. But the premise is fantastic. What would happen if you, if all of the um, undocumented, Mexican immigrants or immigrants overall, Hispanic, Latino immigrants, were to just disappear. A day without a Mexico. Forget about parking your cars at valet. Forget about getting a glass of water at the restaurant. Then I came here, the place was a mess. I had to wash a dish. Why is the government calling them aliens if they did not think that they were from somewhere else? Jose, mothership. I was looking at how Latinos have been talking about this subject matter. For so long, this economic struggle that doesn't allow them to make a really good living at all. It's shameful. Since the time of Dolores Huerta or Cesar Chavez, blacks and browns, browns and blacks have been fighting for economic equality for so damn long. We've made movies about it. You know, we're doing blackouts about it. This is not just a black issue. This is a, 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 a every minority issue on the economy because within the economy, we get somewhere. Two things. One, at the beginning, you were talking about you know what's happening in the in the news cycle, and I think that what we're seeing is sort of the the unpacking of of a culture. Everything that's being brought up, racism and racial inequality uh, and racial injustice, is happening in every sphere of life in this country, and unfortunately, the world. That's why the world has responded. But if we're talking about this country, the biggest difference, I think, between the 1960s and all the civil rights movements and what was beginning then, there are a few differences. One, of course, social media and access to news and information and the power of all that, that that's huge. But two, there were definitely some black celebrities. There were definitely some uh, Latino celebrities. There were definitely some white celebrities. There were definitely some people in a position to use their influence on some level to, to help. But what we didn't have is the economic standing we right, have today. Right, right, right. And that economic standing we have today makes us a huge force. What's great about what TI is proposing, I would go further to say that, that every underrepresented group could, could make, could do something similar to let themselves be acknowledged by the economy because we've talked and it's been spoken about the social contract of, of, us being wherever we are in this society. Light skin, dark skin, black, Latino, Asian, Indian, white, old, young. You're in some place in the society. We, we, we accept certain things. But how much resistance 
we're getting. It makes no sense, Mike. Well, it it makes no sense. No, no, not at all. Listen, if you're white, you want to live a comfortable life. Unfortunately, that comfortable life is within a racist society. True. One of the main factors of comfort, and this goes back to the Maslow needs of survival. You know, when you break those five down, it's financial security. That financial security is what gives you a peace of mind here in this country because we make more money, more. The GDP of this country is bigger than any other country. How do you resist a group of people that are contributing to that economy and bitch about it? My answer to that question is, no, of course not. They don't know what they're doing, but they know what they think they're doing. Any power structure, whoever was running things wherever, whether it's Rome or wherever it is, any power structure, it doesn't want a new power structure to replace it. One of the things that I feel is happening here, on the one side, you have people who are really doing something like what T.I. is doing, what LeBron James is doing, which we're going to talk about. Those are real and powerful things that will change things. But at the same time, you know, I always liken racism to sexism. To you, yeah, it's not right, but I don't want to lose, like you said, my comfort, my position. I I don't want to lose that. I don't want to lose the ability. Yeah, it sucks for you, but, and that but is huge. Mm -hmm. And here's the other thing. It's become political. When did human rights become a political issue? It's a political issue. Like you acknowledge somebody's rights only if they fit, if they're white and they're Republican and they're they're this and they're that. If you're not, I don't acknowledge you. You have no rights. I, I don't they're care. They're shooting but, themselves in the foot, Mike. God, no kidding. Speaking about LeBron James, LeBron James and uh, other stars are forming a new voting rights group. They're going to be calling it more than a vote, and it's essentially aimed at inspiring African Americans to register and to cast the ballot in November. Remind me again, did, did, did blacks vote for Trump? Because I know Latinos did. And the reason Trump is in office is because 39% of Hispanics in this country voted for Donald Trump, something that sent shivers down the spine of our community collectively we all i think our eyes popped out for a second because of the deception and the hypocrisy and the irony but of what it all. did donald trump represent you know we, we talk about images we talk about representation we talk about identity who do most people want to be who, do, who does everybody want to be well, well social media showed us everybody wants to be famous on some level everybody wants to be acknowledged on several some level and and rich and, and rich exactly so you know, and rich enough to not give a fuck. That, <laughs> I'm yep. telling you, that is Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump has always yeah. come across, whether it's a lie or not, he's come across rich enough to not give a fuck. If he has an opinion, he's going to put it out. Right, he's going to take an ad out. He doesn't give a fuck. If I'm wrong, so fuck you, whatever. Okay. So guess what? It's the same appeal I see as for women with the bad boy. You know, why do women like the bad boy? Why does a bad boy image endure? You know why? It endures because it's a rebel. It goes against the grain. Now, it's a taboo, yes. It's a taboo, and it's what everybody secretly would like to be able to break the rules. Everybody yes, secretly yes, likes to break yes. the rules. And if you got somebody who's broken the rules, who's rich, who dates, you know, beautiful women, and he doesn't this. And gets away with it. And gets away with it. Listen, rappers used to sing about Trump in their songs because he was that much of an icon. He represented something. 
Smith Swishers with my thumb. Get money like Donald Trump. I feel absurd money. Private bird money. That Bill Gates, Donald Trump, Bloomberg money. There couldn't be two more important issues right now. Like owning and, and recognizing and using our economic power. And like you said, coming together, we represent a large part of the economy. We have that power as brown and black people. 32% of the population is us. Dude. 1.7 trillion in spending power is what the Hispanic community is. I'm not sure exactly what the black uh, uh, spending power is, but you combine that, you're having, yeah, exactly. you're looking, let's say, just say it's, 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 it's similar to it. That's three trillion dollars just us now that's its own economy that's its own economy yeah you could spin off your own country with that right. economy and we have a choice as to where we spend our money i mean a lot of things i'm on a lot of groups and things and i get sent a list of 85 black owned restaurants you can support in new york city i get things like this because people are now here, here's what's happening it's not just engaging in advocacy in in their own voice like like a celebrity could he could put a black square or when you have that currency, what are you going to do with it? If you can influence, right now we know social media is the reason all of these editors and, and media heads with all their racist comments, social media is what's bringing them down. Their desire to put their opinions out there are now coming to bite them in the ass because now we know who they are through their social media. Well, one of the deepest wars that we're having right now, and it happened like, I just feel like within the span of 36 hours was the war on media. Yes. Um, you and I have been discussing image representation in media for, I don't know how long, I think since the moment I met you uh, years ago, we've been talking about representation matters. Just found out that Adam Rappaport, the editor-in-chief of Bon Appetit, gone because of brownface. And because of the way he treated his black assistant, the way he treated all people of color, how he didn't pay them money and paid white people, the white chefs money for that huge YouTube Bon Appetit uh, channel that they have. It's like one of the most popular shows on YouTube. This went on to Refinery29, the whole Kanye Nass building. Then We See You Wat, which is We See You White American Theater. That was unbelievable. Why do you think they call it the Great White Way? Yeah. I created something called Viva Broadway, an initiative at the Broadway League. And I'll talk about this in depth at, at another moment. But to kind of gloss over it, it was because I walked into my first play, looked back, everybody was white. I felt uncomfortable. And I said, how many others feel like me? We need to do something about it. So I used my power that I had at the moment um, as the face of Univision's news and morning news to create this initiative. And now blacks and Latinos are speaking up. One of them is Lin-Manuel Miranda. To have his name on that, on that sheet, man, that's when you know that these guys are in trouble. Just going with the, the war metaphor, there's a famous book, uh, The Social Types of War, he starts it saying basically that war is a social conflict. I can get into his definition, but, but to synthesize it here, essentially, you know, it's a clash of ideals. It's a clash of values. What you're saying and what I hear you saying, and blacks have faced the same thing in all forms of storytelling, you know, and media is not being represented, not being represented fairly, not being represented accurately, not being told essentially that 
your story, your life, your concerns, they don't, they don't matter. They're, they're not, you know, the world doesn't care. Now, the irony, of course, is now the world does care. And it's, it's a global movement. We're in the center. We're at the epicenter of history right now. They'll be writing about this for decades, about the year 2020 and all the things that are happening right now. Black Lives Matters is making such an incredible impact that people of color, period, feel like their cause as well as someone yes. who's being prejudiced yes. and, and discriminating against them and not allowing them to have any professional, any socially upward mobility. Those people are angry and they want to see things change and they know what the problem is. It's white editors that are comfortable only with their white stories and their white traditions and customs. It's a group. It's like a clique. It's like a country club, man, where, where you can't come in. It's a, it's a social club, a members society club. It's a members only club. It's a members only club. And no one else that doesn't meet, meet this criteria is allowed in. Because we know racism is when a group's bias is backed up by legal and institutional power as resources that it diminishes and oppresses anyone else that isn't in that club. They use the full weight of the country to oppress you. I just want to underscore what you're saying when you, when you say image matters and we're talking about media. I'm reminded of, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, but living in Manhattan, I used to take a lot of cabs, I used to take a lot of yellow cabs. And it's a, it's a well-known thing. Many celebrities talked about it back in, this is long before Uber, uh, how you couldn't get a cab when you're a black man or a black woman for that matter, but, but definitely for black men. I never forgot I was on Ninth Avenue and I was dressed in a suit, you know, I was, you know, young and thin and, you know, and, and I'm, I'm on my way to a meeting and I'm wearing literally a suit, tie, briefcase, the whole thing. And no cab would stop. And, and they do this thing where they like, they hunker down and they act like, you know, like, like they, they don't see you. Wow. And, and it, it really pissed me off. And, and it was, it was bothering me, you know, and finally uh, a cab stops for me. I get in the cab and, it, and it's, it's, he's a Sufi, you know, with the turban and everything. And I was, I was kind of pissed. So I said, so what made you pick me up? And then we had a conversation and he said to me in the course of the conversation, he says, you know, he was from whatever country he was, you know, somewhere in, in, in India. And um, he said, in my country, when we see the news, or not India, he was Arab. Uh, and when we see the news, it's all the black people that are committing the crimes. So it really, so sad, I, it, it is. And it struck me just how globally. It's fucking you know, media, man. Well, that's it. That globally, people come here from another country already with a view of, of people of color. And, and this was a person of color. It's not like, and this is before 9-11. So it's not like, you know, Arabs are going to be getting treated so well in America. But I don't have a black friend who hasn't told me a story of going into a Korean deli and having, being watched like a hawk. Brother, all I have to tell you is the story that happened to me in Morocco. I went with my wife to Morocco to one of the fanciest restaurants in Morocco. Uh, it was our anniversary. We wanted to celebrate it. Uh, and this was earlier in the year. Right? I think it was January or February. We go in and the waiter, you know, they're very friendly out there. He says, so where are you from? And I said, uh, I am Colombian. Oh, my God. This dude got so excited. That he says to me, oh, oh, 
love Colombians. You guys got the good stuff, huh? And then he made the cocaine mm. gesture. Mm-hmm. But by the way, with a smile on his face. Right. Like he's like, like that's like cool. Like we're connecting. Yeah, that's right. cool. He goes, Narcos, best show on TV. And I said, and I'm wow. looking at this and I go, hey, you know that you kind of just insulted me, right? Uh, you just offended me. He goes, why? It's it's a famous show. It's a, it's the, your your culture is known for that throughout the world. And I go, that's the problem. It's we're known for the wrong things, not the good things. Thank you, America, for dispensing that so much that now in Morocco, I'm being bothered by this. Wow. So I totally understand what happens when a particular group with a particular skin color that has a particular problem with anybody else that doesn't look like them to vilify them. This hurts us. It hurts our international standing. It hurts our identity. It hurts our ambitions and aspirations. That's why whenever you see a black man or a Hispanic man or an Asian man or anybody of color make it, do you know how much more they had to put into that than the regular white person? It fucking hurts. And I hope that, that I mean, media representation, image representation fucking matters So in the last couple of days, I've been reading a lot about what's been going on in the media, obviously through the passion of our conversations. But I bumped into this one article by Ezra Klein. He's from uh, Vox. I believe he's the editor-in-chief. He's the guy that runs stuff over there. And he wrote an article. This guy's a bit of an erudite, you know, an intellectual. um, And he wrote an article called America is Changing, and so is the media. In it, he talks about these three bubbles that journalists see stories through. And he talked about the first one being called the sphere of consensus, which is the one where everybody agrees with this. I mean, we see this in the film critic circle, right? A movie that is liked, like Toy Story 3, is liked by everyone. That that whole agreement is called the sphere of consensus. Then there's the sphere of deviance in which a view is considered universally ugly, repugnant, you know, not good for us. The third bubble is the sphere of legitimate controversy, which is where journalists are expected to cover all sides. What he's saying in that is that these three spheres change over time. The thing is that no one gets the memo when it changes. They continue to operate in what is now archaic in a modern world with modern views. And it's only these protests and these riots that allow them to sort of awaken from this spell and or dream um, that they don't want to end. Well, I agree. But I also think here's the thing about success. The joke is, oh, you know, you're a Democrat till you become successful, then you become a Republican. 
If you're a Paul McCartney or a Tracy Chapman or a Bob Dylan or, or, or any number of, of singers or poets or artists who come from poor, from struggle, and write about it and touch a chord, after they become successful, okay, you know, how do they stay relevant? How do they sing about what they are not experiencing? How do they identify with something they no longer have to worry about? How connected do they stay to the rest of the world, to their audience, potentially, to a younger audience? And I think a lot of these people, they are, not that I don't think racists should take responsibility for their actions, they should, but these people are products of a different time. And then they move into not just being a certain age, it's entering a certain world where these are the rules. Everybody thinks like this. Everybody's like this. It's like, well, everybody's doing Coke. So, uh, you know, I did Coke. Like anything else, once you move into a certain strata and that's how everybody is, everybody's, you know, you look at any thing that's going on in Washington. What do you see? Who do you see Trump surrounded by constantly? You know, whites in a, a bunch of a bunch of old white men, white right. patriarchy. Right. And so any of these people, Mitch O'Connell, any of these people, uh, they're, they're all of a certain financial level, of a certain mindset, of a certain skin color. It's like this. And they don't interact with anyone else that isn't like them. And they don't and they don't care to. And they don't care to. So how are we going to darn change? And this well, is just honestly it. the only way. This, this is the is reason it. that the amendment, the First Amendment allows us for free speech and to be able to talk. But if we don't use it this way, it's just like, this is the only way for them to listen. And it's not that they're listening. We're forcing them to listen. You know, they're not <laughs> right. listening. We're, we're just, we're forcing them to listen. Right. And since you gave those three things, because I love those three spheres, the sphere of consensus, the sphere of deviance, and the sphere of legitimate controversy. I love that. I love framing things. I just have to read to you because I think you'll appreciate this. From that, that Hans Spear book, he, he's got what he calls the, the three pure types of war, the absolute war, the instrumental war, and agnostic fighting. The absolute war is, is respectively towards annihilation, advantage, glory. An absolute war is unrestricted and unregulated. The agonistic fighting is regulated according to quote unquote norms. And the instrumental war may or may not be restricted according to the considerations of expediency. And that's where we are now. We're in an instrumental war. Like, what's it going to take? This is what we do. To me, there is no other answer than what we are encroaching upon right now. Here's another uh, quote from the article. He goes, the news media likes to pretend that it simply holds up a mirror to America as it is. We don't want to be seen as actors crafting the political debate, agents who make decisions that shape the boundaries of the national discourse. We are of course, doing exactly that. We always have been doing that. When I read this, man, I thought that that was something that I had thought in the back of my mind that was happening, mm, but mm. no one's going to be that that obvious about it. Like there's still a sense of, you know, a, a moral code to journalism that you're not using your subjectivism to influence your objectivism, right? The whole thing behind journalism is that it's not governmentally regulated. There is no task force in the United States that oversees journalism. Journalism is truly a code amongst people that want to create checks and balances, mostly to uh, people in power. But when that those codes begin to erode by influence of a particular majority, 
brother, then the whole system is rigged. Dude, what I hear you saying is that when the, the people who are supposed to enforce and encourage accountability have no accountability, then we're lost. Mm-hmm. We're lost. And I think that what we just saw, and this is the importance behind what's been happening in the media is, folks, understand that by toppling white supremacist institutions and forcing them to diversify, yes, could be uncomfortable for them, but this is the best thing that could happen to our country. Absolutely. I can't emphasize enough that what we're doing this movement is making them accountable for, for what's done. Did you read what happened in Tucson, by the way? No, no, no. In Tucson, they passed a law like just like very quickly to make it illegal to record a police that you could be arrested and you could be fined up to $750. They approved this ordinance that said literally, uh, this was on April. As a matter of fact, they adopted it on the 21st of April. That's a response. Uh, that's quite a response. Now, of course, there's a public uproar and they're talking about, well, maybe we'll suspend it. But the fact that they would do that, the fact that they would make it illegal to record the police. And that's it for this fifth episode of Brown and Black. Next week, Mike and I are going to be discussing Afro-Latinos and their struggles on identity and visibility in the media. And we're going to be talking to Eric Velasquez, uh, who has written many books um, and is Afro-Latino himself. And so how much does image representation matter in that context? How do we change our fellow Hispanics from accepting that African color is beautiful that black is beautiful and that black isn't ugly and that we're all fighting for the same thing well with that said i'm jack rico and he's mike Sargent, and he is brown and i am black and this is the brown and black podcast talk to you next week Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.